Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this episode, we take up a variety of topics, including new focus on cybersecurity, how Taylor Swift informs your compliance program, what's on the mind of CCOs, Rachel Carson, leadership, what is a corrupt payment, using AI to generate show notes, and VAT from the Caremark perspective. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. All right. Hello and welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance podcast with me, Christy Granthart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox. And in this episode, we're covering the the largest penalty ever issued by OFAC to a non-financial institution, whether the future of compliance is rosy, the moves the Biden administration is making on the cybersecurity front, and why Taylor Swift is the due diligence queen. Seriously. But first... Tom, how's your week been, and what do you think is the most interesting development? Well, my week has been great because I got to attend a great compliance conference, ECI Impact 2023, first ECI conference since 2019. And frankly, Christy, I have forgotten how just fun it is to be around our colleagues and talking compliance and you know completely geeking out. We were in a fairly constrained place in Jersey City. So everybody just stayed there. And, you know, we had cocktail party together and we ate together and they had wonderful breakfasts and lunches together. So it was just so nice to kind of see everyone. The speakers were great. The breakouts were great. It really presaged Compliance Week 2023. We'll be in a couple of weeks, which I'll be attending as well. So uh, it's just, I had forgotten how much fun it is. And ECI's focus is a little bit different. They are a, a bit higher level. Uh, so it's smaller, but it's more tailored to people like us. So some pretty high-level programs, and ECI is really driving their organization and discussion towards ESG. Some to be very interested in what they come up with that can help compliance professionals either move into ESG or incorporate or or incorporate ESG strategies into compliance. So uh, anyway, it was a lot of fun, and I like I said, I just had forgotten how fun it is to be around our colleagues. I, I love it. I've, I always come out with so much energy from conferences and it's so cool to have them back in person again. So hopefully you and I can meet up at one soon. That would be ideal. But what's Maybe going on this week? Episode. And I know. I love that. Ooh, in-person live. Fantastic. So the Biden administration making some interesting noises about cybersecurity. Why don't we start there? Well, the Biden administration is going to sort of t- tamp down on cybersecurity. Some of these things will be extensions of current rulemaking or other regulatory focus, but um, they view companies as primarily responsible, even if it's state actors in the form of criminal groups run by states or even you know Chinese army soldiers. And they're going to uh, really ramp up regs. The most interesting, or perhaps that's not the right word, significant is there's going to be direct liability for software vendors. 
So vendors will be directly liable for failing to adopt reasonable security measures into programs. So if you and I buy a program, turns out there's a flaw, there may be liability on us, but there may well be liability on vendors. And I think that's going to get the business community moving towards trying to harden the defenses as much as possible. We'll have new rulemaking. Uh, We'll have the government leading the way as it's going to uh, be a plaintiff in both criminal criminal and civil matters. So the Biden administration, I think, I don't want to say they've awakened because I think they have been awakened, but now I think they're going to ramp up the regulatory side of things and it's going to leave the people like us in the compliance realm to implement those and businesses to understand not only do you have a risk of loss and reputation, but now you're going to have a significantly expanded legal risk. Yeah, I think that this is really interesting. And first first thing, shout out to my colleague, Alex Southwell, uh, Gibson Dunn, who was one of the authors of this. I'm a former Gibson attorney, and he and I worked together on a number of cases. So it was fun to see his name. But one of the things that struck me in the article was that it's specifically related to source code used in the applications or in the software that may not have even been written by the company that was using the software or using the underlying code who could still be held responsible. And that's a high bar. This is very serious stuff they're talking about. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I, my speech at ECI was around the coming conflict with China from the business perspective and the cyber attacks by Chinese state actors and Chinese government actors has increased something like 1500 fold over the past five years. So businesses are as much on the front line as a Taiwan, the U.S. military, or even the U.S. mainland. It's going to be interesting to watch how it all comes into play. I think there's some high level things here that when we actually start to watch what they look like, especially when enforcement starts to show up, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting, but once again, focus on that cybersecurity and also related to what I love, which is privacy. So making sure that those two things are squarely in your in your focus. So you were just at ECI. And I think one of the things that people always are talking about is the future of the compliance industry, where it's going, its trajectory, um, its expansion potentially. And I wanted to talk about this article that was in the FCPA blog written by Dick Casson. I was at dinner a couple of weeks ago, since it is conference season, with one of my compliance colleagues, not in my company, but someone I've worked with previously, who was really sort of negative about the future of the profession and feeling like it wasn't good. I tend to disagree. I'm an optimist and somebody who just really believes in what we're doing. And I think that Dick Casson would agree with me because he had an article that was called Three Graphs Explain the Compliance Industry's Growth. And those related to people, money availability, and regulation. So in terms of people, he said that the planet has seen an increase of 5.5 billion people. That's a lot in the last 70 years. So a 250% growth in a very short time, if you consider the multi-million year history of the planet. And he also points out that money supply has increased 2,000% since 1950. Obviously, some of that is driven by inflation or quantitative easing, but much of most of it is real expansion, especially if you look at buying power and people coming out of poverty in that time frame. And lastly, he says that this is an amazing statistic. There have been approximately 3,000% 
more regulations now than there were in 1950. And that number doesn't even include the new state and local regulations that have been put into place in that era. So those three factors put together, more people, more money, more regulation, makes him very bullish on the profession. And, and he's very much in the weeds on this profession, let's be honest. Um, so Tom, I found this article very encouraging. What do you think about these three sort of quantifiable parts and what their effect is on our industry? Well, I went a little bit different interpretation on this. I don't think, I didn't find these valid. I don't think they explain the increase, if any, in bribery and corruption. I think we've had growth for 6,000 years, maybe. And just because we have growth in population, money, wealth, uh, innovation, I don't think it necessarily follows that we have bribery and corruption. As I recall, we've had crime since the beginning. If you want to go back to the Garden of Eden, perhaps you take it back a little further. But uh, I didn't find the basis of his argument persuasive uh, simply because the money supply has increased. We've had, we didn't even, he didn't even talk about moving from a colonial world to a post-colonial world to a bilateral world of the United States, the Soviet Union, or trilateral world and the non-aligned countries or what we used to call the first, second, third world or the end of the Soviet Union and the New World Order, or the United States invasion of Iraq, which I find all of those much more persuasive as reasons for the increase in bribery and corruption. And to say that uh, on Earth Day 1971, 52 years ago, we didn't, where zero population growth was the biggest uh, thing we talked about, we haven't achieved that. I don't really think that really has anything to do with bribery and corruption either. So, uh, I was a little confused by all of this. I really don't think those are the basis for the increase, if any, in bribery and corruption. And indeed, there may be a lot less now because of laws. The one thing I do agree on that Dick has consistently maintained since I have known him is I can't tell you there's less bribery and corruption, but I can tell you there's more compliance. And that's what I see as the solution. And the United Nations last week released a report which said 15% of the world's annual economic output is lost to corruption, $3 trillion annually, and that that would fund a whole lot of social welfare programs. And so one of the reasons I call myself the compliance evangelist is I believe that every day in every way, I am doing something in the fight against worldwide scourge of corruption, including talking to you on this podcast and putting it out. So I feel like I'm a part of something much bigger than myself. I acknowledge a huge problem, but I just don't see these factors as really relating to the increase, once again, if any, in bribery and corruption. Well, I mean, I think that if you look at it from the perspective of that regulation boom, I think that that is maybe not just related to bribery and corruption, because he did use it to talk about compliance more broadly. I think that really is the most compelling version of his article, because I do agree with you. I think that more people, more money doesn't necessarily equal kleptocracy and whether or not that's going to be managed. But I do think that expansion of trade sanctions, ever expanding privacy laws, whatever we end up with in the ESG space, all the third party due diligence laws coming out of Europe. I do think that that is a harbinger of continuing the bigness of the compliance profession, which relates to, of course, enforcement actions. So we're going to talk about the big one on the street in the last week, which let's remember, we heard that, you know, sanctions is the new FCPA, right? Orange is the new black. 
So let's talk about where OFAC is really flexing its muscles along with the DOJ. So we're, of course, talking about British American tobacco. And they have a recent case where OFAC, again, slapped the largest financial penalty ever for a non-financial institution. So as far back as 2005, documents proved that British American Tobacco's management was aware that they were selling their cigarettes into North Korea and that this violated U.S. sanctions. So in 2007, they spun off the North Korea sales business to a third-party company, claiming it was no longer involved in North Korean tobacco sales. However, whoops, the company continued to maintain control over the business in North Korea through a third-party company, where really they were, in fact, maintaining control of the subsidiary. So the transactions resulted in an estimated $700 million in revenue for the North Korean manufacturers, one of which was owned by the North Korean military, not typically one that we like to see money going to here in the United States. And OFAC and the DOJ both got in on this one with OFAC placing a $508 million penalty, which our friend Matt Kelly noted was the very top of the scale, which is unusual for OFAC. They usually get somewhere in the middle or the lower end of their possible penalties. And the DOJ was in for $121 million. And I thought it was interesting. So I was looking at articles, I know you were, Tom, too, by Matt Kelly at Radical Compliance and our friend Michael Volkov. And the aggregating factors listed by both in theirs was the company's executive leadership having actual knowledge of the sanctions busting activity. They didn't self-disclose, obviously, OFAC and DOJ's favorite activity, and really the egregiousness of the con- conduct. So British American Tobacco has agreed to a suite of updates in its sanctions compliance program, including what we would expect, better risk assessments, improved training, better policies, and those refreshed internal controls. Tom, there are so many different things that we could talk about here, but I know you wanted to focus on the senior leadership responsibilities, especially when we look at this case in light of the Caremark Standard Duty of Care, McDonald's doctrine that's really very new. What do you think about this senior leadership issues? I think that issue that you raise, senior leadership, Caremark, McDonald will be the next wave of litigation in this matter after the Department of Justice weighs in is I can't wait to see the DPA on this. This is as bad an example of illegal conduct as I can recall. Uh, Rarely in in our FCPA world do we see C-suite involvement. Here we have C-suite involvement. They obviously knew what they were doing because they set up shell companies to evade sanctions. McDonald's is the case which created a duty of oversight for senior executives, obviously building on Caremark. Caremark has two prongs. One is you have to have a system in place. And then two is if red flags come to your attention, you have to do something. I'm going to assume BAT had a system in place because internally they tried to evade it. So (laughs) I think the board has is going to have Caremark liability, but as equally as interesting will be the senior executives. Uh, we didn't see anything about clawbacks in the uh, OFAC enforcement action. They did reference terminations, and I have to you know, some of the culpable parties, but if the U.S. can assert jurisdiction over the individuals, uh, there may well be criminal liability. I would expect to see some attempts at claw- clawbacks under current existing law, as well as McDonald's. the Every senior executive, I think, could be brought in under either prong for a duty of oversight, having a system in place and ignoring red flags. Typically, you see a 
Caremark case brought in the state of Delaware, because that's where most corporations are incorporated. But you see a settlement somewhere in the range of low millions, low seven figures to maybe eight figures. But I would point out that, or remind the audience rather, that we do have a $3 billion settlement, and that's Petrobras. And that's not Petrobras, the parent. That's Petrobras USA, who paid $3 billion around Petrobras's corruption case, which was from the FCPA world, not the biggest, it generated the most fallout and follow-on litigation. So I could certainly see just a stunning multi-billion dollar award in totality against BAT because of the clear senior management involvement, the clear steps to evade sanctions by creating structures, shell corporations, yet still running those shell corporations. So this is one I really want to keep my eyes on. And if you're a shareholder of BAT America, you might want to call a lawyer because you might be entitled to some pretty significant compensation because this has got to drive down the value of the stock. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the things, as you mentioned, we haven't seen the deferred prosecution agreement document yet, or at least it's not available online. I couldn't find it, but it will be at some point. And however, Matt Kelly did state that there is a self-certification requirement here, which I think is really interesting annually. I think is interesting because I think it relates potentially to some of the things that the DOJ has implemented for the CEO and CCO to self-certify or to certify to them that the program is good at the end of a DPA. And we've got, we've covered a whole lot of interesting questions about that. If you haven't heard, go back one episode or two episodes, you can hear that discussion. But is this another sort of self-certification? Is it continuing the trend of that certification element being part of these enforcement actions, even if it is self-certification? What do you think, Tom? Well, that's actually been a requirement for a long, long time. Back when monitors were more prevalent in the late aughts, it was a requirement. When monitors fell out of favor a little bit, sort of 2012 to 2016, 2017, maybe, it moved to a self-certification. Then monitorships became a little more prevalent. And now I think they've they've made a comeback. But whether a monitor is required or not, the CEO or the company always had to certify they had completed their obligations of the deferred prosecution agreement. So uh, I'm not quite sure I would categorize it as new or different. It's a continuation of something. And whether OFAC or the Department of Justice will hold a company who becomes recalcitrant liable, we'll just have to wait and see. Were you surprised there isn't a monitor assigned here? I would say um, I'm going to hold off answering that question until I see the DPA. Fair enough. All right. As long as we are on the trend of corrupt payments, Tom, this is a really interesting article that you found. Why don't you talk about it a bit? Right. So my friend Vince Walden wrote an article for, he writes a column for Fraud Magazine. And in this month's column, he looked at what is the profile of a corrupt payment? And I'm sure you have had to look at payments. Now, Vince, he's a fraud investigator, so he's looking at it from the fraud angle. But corruption's a subset of fraud, and, and I find the approach the same. So Vince posed some questions to his research team, and they were, what's the most common general ledger account of an where an improper expense is booked to? 
Well, anti-corruption test is common among the population of those known corrupt transactions. And are manual payments the norm or are they outliers outside of the United States? Are there occasions when manual payments are being abused to create a pot of money to pay a bribe? And Christy, I had always focused on really the anomalies. So you set a range from A to Z, literally, and if it was above Z, got flagged. If it was below A, got flagged, meaning it was unusual. But here, Vince is focusing a little bit more on the type of payment, and it's a more sophisticated analysis. And I think it's really insightful because it gives, it's not so much that it gives you new new tools or new insights to look at, but it allows you to refine your search more uh, narrowly to start with. And by doing that, you save time, you save money, and you're more efficient, and hopefully you'll pick up any nefarious activity, whether it's fraud, i.e. someone stealing money from the company, or corruption, stealing money from the company, not for themselves, but to create a pot of money to pay bribes. So I could easily see these types of questions applied to charitable donations, uh, marketing expense, uh, obviously gifts, travel, and entertainment. But where could you literally create a pot of money so big you could pay a bribe. Now, unfortunately, bribe payers are like lawyers in the following respects. You're only limited by your imagination. (laughs) And if they can think of it, you know, they might be able to do it if you don't have proper controls. But I found his approach of, okay, let's look at the, the highest risk of payments. I mean, it used to be, you know, any place to offshore banks, the usual suspects, um, Caribbean islands, offshore England, Isle of Man, Isle of Wight, you know, those types of places. But anything you can do to refine that search is, I think, going to be helpful and and very interesting. And I hope uh, he can turn up some research and then he can publish that research and tell us, at least from the fraud perspective, what he found. And and then maybe he'll turn to corruption or people like you and I can take the information his research turns up and applies it directly to corruption. I tell you, when I read the article... wrote to you and said, is there more here? Because he was working with Anheuser-Busch's InBev Foundation and MIT researchers. So I wanted to know what's the answer? What what are the answer to these questions? What do you find? So I totally agree with you. I am ready to hear what what it came up with and then how to apply these questions to other companies because I think they'll give great information. Which brings me to my second reason that the compliance profession is in great shape. Tom, I'll be interested to see what your response is to this. So KPMG recently finished its survey of 240 CCOs from the largest Fortune 500 organizations. And this was across six different industries and the results are in. So the unsurprising 73% of CCOs said that they feel increasing regulatory expectations and scrutiny, not really surprising there. 43% of the respondents said that new regulatory requirements are their top compliance challenge. Sure. Number one, lots of regulations. Now, happily, 53% of those respondents said they felt pressure from the board to enhance compliance. So to me, that says that compliance is still a major focus of the board and something that they're paying a lot of attention to. They thought that data analytics and monitoring, hopefully like the things we were just talking about, using technology is a big focus. 53% of the CCOs stated that they're looking to enhance technology and data analytics. I'm actually surprised it's only 53% and not basically all of them. And the really good news about that is that companies are putting money where their mouth is. So 63%, significantly higher than half, stated they expect an increase in their technology budget. So 
Again, two hot areas, cyber and ESG. We talk about it all the time with 33% of the CCOs naming cyber information at the top of their list. And just under half of CCOs at these huge companies have said that they have not yet implemented an ESG compliance plan at all, which may explain why more than half of them said that enhancing monitoring and testing of ESG metrics was going to be a top priority in the next two years. 45% of them have expanded their ethics and compliance training. We love that. And lastly, for all the gloom and doom folks in the field, the view from the highest seat in the house is good stuff. 56%, more than half, are going to increase their full-time headcounts this year. Tom, any of these statistics stand out to you? What is your main takeaway from these results? Probably tying it to what I heard at ECI Impact 2023 is the nearly 50% of companies who don't have an ESG program. And I say that because there were several presentations from companies who had put in as far back as 18 months ago, ESG programs. And what they said uniformly was we had access to more information than we've ever had. And it was our information. It was company information. Some was third parties, but it was third parties we were doing business with. And yes, we were able to meet green targets, or yes, we were able to meet sustainability targets or even governance targets, but it was a business process improvement. And we now see the power of having oversight over all of those and that we'll be able to not only make ESG and compliance more effective uh, because the key component in there is integrity, we will drive more efficient business processes, we will attract and retain more and better talent. Uh, the generation, our generation, I would say my generation and your generation's values are different than the current generation going into the workforce. And it's always been that way. My generation was different than my parents' generation. And the values of the 20-somethings or even the 30 to 35 to 40-somethings who are taking leadership positions now are different. And it's not that they're tree huggers, but they have values that say, I want to work for a company where I feel I can trust the company, that I feel like I can raise my hand and speak up. And it's going to be heard. It will be evaluated. I won't be fired for it. I won't be retaliated for it. And that that is of value. Well, that is ESG because that's sustainability. And so for all of these reasons, Companies are finding the profitability increasing because of looking at ESG in a, in a unified manner. And that's that's the biggest thing they're getting out of it. So the companies that are not doing that are going to fall further and further behind just on the talent acquisition and retention prong alone. It's so interesting, Tom. About three weeks ago, I did a I did a webinar for Navex on human rights impact assessments. And they had so many people sign up that they were they were really shocked at the level of interest. And since then, I've been inundated with requests for human rights impact assessments from some companies that, frankly, have reputations for not doing a great job that are turning this around because they need to. And they it's it's just so fascinating to me how much interest there is in doing this and how nascent the field is in terms of understanding it. So I think we have huge opportunities. I've been amazed by just the response from one webinar and seeing how many people need help in this area. It's fascinating. So let's turn to leadership. You're basically talking about leadership and in companies and, and how leaders work. Why don't you talk to us about one of those people that you find so interesting? Well, actually... Anytime I have any excuse to read anything about Rachel Carson, I get excited. 
I read Silent Spring when I was in college, and it was one of the seminal books affecting me in my life. If you've never read Silent Spring, it came out in 1962. It is as relevant today is as it has ever been. Um, when I was a teenager, the big environmental issue was other than zero population growth with DDT. And to the point, there's a Joni Mitchell song, Big Yellow Taxi, where she says, hey, farmer, farmer, stop using that DDT now. And in the early 2000s, my daughter, who was a very young girl and like Joni Mitchell said to me, dad, what's DDT now? And it made me realize we've gotten rid of DDT. It is not, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's still used somewhere, but it's not in the mosquito spray that used to go through our neighborhood every summer. Literally, that was DDT. So the impact, and that's just one thing, uh, but the impact of Rachel Carson is still felt today. She is, the, in many ways, the patron saint of the modern environmental movement, although they recognize others were equally involved. So, yes, I love Rachel Carson. The thing about Rachel Carson was she was as introverted as a person could be. At a time when very few women didn't get married, she never got married. And she was the spinster aunt. Uh, and she lived with her sister. And she actually was a researcher for the Department of Agriculture um, and wrote the book on her own time while an employee. And why I found this article so powerful and why I wanted to bring it to this podcast, Christy, is there are multiple styles of leadership. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say no one's ever called you an introvert. <laughs> if they did, they'd be wrong. <laughs> yes, go ahead. <laughs> but they can... An introvert can lead, and in many ways, it can be more powerful because they lead by example. They don't really lead in other more verbal ways. They can, but when you have someone who leads by example, certainly in my professional career, I've said, well, you know, if the boss is going to work that hard, I darn show better, and I want to, you know, prove to them that I can work at that level. That's my competitive instinct, but that's a valid leadership style, and she there have been multiple articles. This actually came out of the Harvard Business Review, and there was a podcast on it. So we've linked to that in the show notes, the article, and I hope you will take time to listen to that podcast because it's equally powerful. And it just shows, Christy, that there are multiple styles of leadership. Your leadership style should be you because the one thing everyone will pick up is inauthenticity. If you're an introvert and try to be an extrovert or vice versa. So be yourself. Lead by example. If you can do what Rachel Carson did, all I have to say, God bless you. Yeah, it's incredible. I spent a, a semester in Costa Rica, actually, at a law school there internationally, and we studied a lot about the DDT experience and about the litigation that came after it and international law and environmental impact, things like that. It was absolutely fascinating. So, I mean, she did such amazing work. This is a, a big shift from 1962 to not only today, but basically tomorrow and next week. Um, my article comes from the technology blog, Make Use Of. And I picked this article because I'm absolutely fascinated with, with all of the artificial intelligence, but we're going to focus on one little thing here, which is the artificial intelligence assistance, specifically those are, that are deployed to attend meetings and take notes and summarize next steps. So earlier this week, I went to a business roundtable, and it was all about the use of AI and ChatGBT. So this was not a compliance meeting. It was of all advisory type groups and people who own companies like mine in consulting. 
One of the participants who has a marketing company said that he uses an AI assistant called Fred. So Fred has his own Zoom on camera, right? He's got his own little box and he sits in the meeting transcribing and taking notes. He summarizes important points, drafts the final follow-up email, which is so awesome in some ways. As the business owner, I'm like, this is amazing. You're going to do all this work for me. But then my compliance brain just went freaking nuts, right? So I think that compliance officers really need to be focusing on this now because somebody is downloading one of the eight tools that was looked at in this AI meeting notes thing. So think about the mightiness of this data mine for good or for bad. So obviously there is a huge productivity improvement when we stop having to do all of these follow-ups and summaries, especially as compliance officers are supposed to basically document everything. And also, if we can access this data or the materials created by Fred and his kind, it's almost like we could be in every meeting. But oh my gosh, like the privacy elements of this kind of make my head spin, right? Do we tell everybody that they're being recorded by Fred? Who is Fred sending his data to? Who has access to this data? Who could go into our corporate databases and find this information? How do we get it? I have an absolute raging pet peeve when people automatically start recording without asking me if it's okay. That may just be me from my time in the UK and Europe, but when it immediately starts recording and I say, no, people get confused. I don't care. I don't like it. Uh, But what we need to do as compliance officers is we really need to think about the DOJ came out with all this discussion about ephemeral media. To me, this is almost the opposite. This is recording so many things. Do we really want that? But if we are going to allow it, and we should think about that too, then how are we going to manage all this information and how can we use it to our advantage? What do you think, Tom, of an AI assistant? Do you have a Fred? Is it a great tool? Is it a terrible tool? How would you advise companies to deal with this? It's kind of amazing. So let me take it from a different angle than some of the issues you raised, Christy, because what I have discovered in my experimentation with chat GPT or AI is that it doesn't make me better, smarter, uh, or even more productive. What it does is it gives me more stuff. Whether that stuff is I can dictate a question and get a full-blown answer, whether that stuff is tell me how to market my podcast, whether that stuff is give me a business plan for a podcast network. It's just more. It's necessarily better. Uh, And so I struggle with I really don't have time for more. <laughs> right. Really, I'm working pretty hard now and more just means more I got to do. So if I take this podcast and put it in a chat GPT and say, give me a transcript. Yeah, I'll get a good first draft, but it's just that. And you've got to edit it and refine it. And that means more work for me, uh, which I don't need and frankly don't want. Uh, so first of all, understand this is just more. It's not really anything new or different. And you may not get um, the final draft of your meeting minutes uh, from ChatGPT. You may have to assign it to a lawyer. And I one time had to do that for a series of committees at Halliburton where I had to sit in on the meetings. They were more sales or technical, but I was there at the lawyer to take notes. And then I had to send it up out of the commercial section who then critique my note taking. Uh, and we kept separate documents for our own, you know, reasons for legal liability reasons. And you're going to have to have somebody do that. So all of the issues you talked about are certainly valid and they need to be raised, but think about, does this really give you something 
that you need, that you want, or is even a nice to have, because you can have an attendee take notes, but how about you take it a step further and say, there will be no meetings without an agenda. And you print out the agenda and you leave three spaces under each agenda item. And that's where the notes go. And the notes have to be concise enough to fit in there in a handwritten basis, even if they're retyped. So you can make your meeting process more efficient. This will give you more. And it may be you decide it's worth that. But the tool's not going to capture the nuance of a meeting of the individual expressions, body language, maybe even the witty repartee. (laughs) So you need to, to think about, is this something that is of value to me to put potential legal liability in place? And not that I would ever suggest that people don't take notes, but if there's notes, they could be produced. That's right. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that you have notes from Fred at a thousand meetings. Some of them may have nefariousness in them. Think about that. All right, Tom, let's talk about the other book. You wanted to talk about books this week, man. So your favorite topic and my least is document governance and retention. So tell me about this book you're excited about. So I met this woman, Adrian Bell Humor, and Adrian is a internal auditor from Western Canada. And I interviewed her about her auditing practice because she talked about, she wanted to talk about corporate governance and board meeting minutes. And in that, she told me, oh, and I've got this book coming out called The 24-Hour Rule, and it's about document management. Well, everyone knows me in documents. So I said, well, I got to talk to you about that. So I interviewed her about this and she's a complete document geek. And we completely geeked out on a podcast But her book lays out a formula or rather a series of steps to manage documents. And I would say every compliance professional needs to study this. The six steps are capture, structure, present, communicate, store, and then use for innovation. And if that sounds like a process, guess what it is? Now, you may be doing that in your head, but you may be hit by a bus tomorrow. And what's in your head doesn't get translated. And if you can put rigor around a process, then you can have that uniformly throughout the compliance function. And so the compliance professional in Dubai or Singapore, or you name the non-US location, will be working under the same process and protocol that you are here in the corporate home office in America. So it's a great book. Adrian is a, a wonderful woman and her internal audit perspective gives it a little bit different twist than you and I, as it should. But, uh, uh, and now AJ and I are going to start a document. So we're going to completely geek out. Document podcast. Well, wow. fantastic. Well, I mean, I've been known to say that people hate paper programs and I think paper has a lot of necessity and we shouldn't eschew paper entirely or give it such a bad name because frankly, it's necessary. Even if geeking out on it isn't my favorite topic, but I appreciate your interest in it. But let's finish with a heck of a lot of fun. This one made me smile. This is from the FCPA blog. It's written by Harry Casson and it's titled, This Proves It, She's Also the Queen of Due Diligence. Now, who is she in this context? This is no other than Taylor Swift. How did Taylor Swift end up in the FCPA blog? Well, turns out she was offered a $100 million sponsorship deal from Sam Bankman-Fried's SBF's now-failed cryptocurrency exchange FTX. 
So by doing so, she avoided being included in the multi-billion dollar, may it be up to five is the theory, class action against many of the celebrities that endorsed FTX. So this includes Giselle Bündchen, Tom Brady, and Shaquille O'Neal. So why and how did she avoid their fate? Uh, She did her due diligence. So on a podcast, one of the attorneys, Adam Moskowitz, said that during the discovery phase of the lawsuit, he was surprised to find proof that Swift herself had asked, and I quote, can you tell me that these are not unregistered securities, unquote. Okay, so does this seem likely or unlikely from a pop star? Well, Elon Musk weighed in on this. So I'm telling you, this is the most fun article ever. He tweeted, quote, Taylor is smart and her father is a well-regarded investment banker, unquote. It appears that the apple does not fall far from the tree. So nice job, Taylor. Tons of love for you from the entire compliance community. So see, Tom, this has it all. Taylor Swift, SBF, Elon Musk, Tom Brady, Giselle Bundchen. It's so good. And it's compliance. And from the FCPA blog, do you have a favorite Taylor Swift song? No. No? (laughs) I don't know any Taylor Swift songs. (laughs) Man. But what I do know is if you offer someone $100 billion to endorse your product, that And their response is, that's great. Tell me about your product. And is your product an unregistered security? That is far beyond the price of admission. And for her to say that, even if she didn't come up with a question herself, it demonstrates that as rich and famous as she is, she knew if she didn't think of it, she knew to have an advisor think of it. And it was a question that was so unanswered or unanswerable that she felt uncomfortable enough to turn down a hundred million dollars where several celebrities didn't uh, have that discomfort. And so I really drove home to me the question, the point, Christy, that due diligence is not limited to your third party sales agents. Uh, (laughs) Ask some basic questions about who you're doing business with, how they're doing business, what is their business? What are they selling? Who are they selling to? Where are they selling it? How are they selling it? And uh, I recognize the cultural preeminence of Taylor Swift. She's currently on a major tour, started in Texas because her mother is from Houston. Um, I also acknowledge I'm sadly, woefully uncool, as I don't, <laughs> as my daughter would say, but as I don't have any Taylor favorite Taylor Swift songs, but this story is absolutely great. And the story, the way Harry wrote it was great. The way you discussed it was great. And it really shows both how straightforward these types of inquiries are and and also why money can turn people's heads in ways that we frankly talked about in another story from the FCA blog, which was a lot of more money in the world. And $100 million is a lot of money. Even if you're Taylor Swift, it's a lot of money. For the record, we had Love Story played in an orchestral version at the walkout of our wedding when people were leaving. So I'm a big fan, have been for a long time. But thank you, Tom, for joining me for this fantastic episode of the Two Gurus podcast. We will do this again soon. It was way too much fun, Christy. Take care. Bye. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as Christy and I did recording it and bringing it to you. If you have a question or article you would like Christy or I to look at for an upcoming episode, please email us or you could link to us uh, or send us an IM through LinkedIn. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.